Hasn't the music been terrific today? I got, yeah, amen. And I, and I love it because no matter how bad my sermon is right now, you guys are going to go away happy. So it just make, takes all the pressure right off. You know, I've known for a number of weeks now that I'm going to be, would be speaking about friendship today. We thought it appropriate to talk about friendship on Friend Day. And, um, you know, the Lord just gave me some wonderful reminders this week about the importance and, and the value, just really the treasure that friendship is. Uh, first of all, in the middle of the week, just out of the blue, I hadn't talked to him in a number of months, my, my college roommate called me. You know, he and I, we, he lived in Holden across the street from my aunt and uncle. We met each other up at Bates College, and we, we, we roomed together my sophomore through my senior year on campus, and he and I became great friends in a, in a place where there were literally no Christians here were we roommates, roommates, and we both turned out to be Baptist pastors out, out of there. So it was kind of a miracle in and of itself. But, you know, and, um, and just, it was just so quick on how, you know, he called because he, he had just done a wedding out here for a family member who was looking for a church and a little further west in our state and was look, looking to see if I knew of anything, that kind of stuff. But just very quickly how the relationship, you know, just checking in on kids and talking about parents and how's life going, this and that, and how his wife, Elizabeth's doing, Christina's just, it was just kind of natural right back in the form very quickly. You know, you ever had that kind of experience? You know, and then, then this weekend, uh, a friend of mine uh, who hadn't been in town and it, it, it ministered in New England, left in 2003, went to a different region of our country, came back, was into town, and we had a chance to, to visit with him and have lunch with he and his wife, and so we sat down, and you know, he just had a heart attack recently and some other things, and so we were having lunch together yesterday, I had to leave the men's retreat e early to come back and, and meet with them, and, and um, just, just how quickly we just kind of slid back into just being able to share th deep things that were happening in each other's lives, he and I used to meet together regularly for prayer and that kind of stuff, and it was just just how it flowed, and, and, and the Lord really used it to remind me of a couple of things, and, and one of those is just how important friendships are in our lives. You know, I mean, when I, I think kind of friendships, that, you know, they're, they're kind of like the icing on the cake, right? You know, I mean, I, I'm blessed, I, I, you know, it, it, I have tremendous family relationships, and, you know, I have an older brother, two younger sisters, and, and we're, we're, we all get along well as well as brothers and sisters can, can get along. You know what I mean? I'm not saying when we get together for like, you know, we've gone on a cruise together a couple of times, it's kind of a little friction can happen every once in a while, but that's kind of normal stuff. But, but we talk to each other every week. We stay in contact. We know what's going on in each other's lives. And so it, it, they're good relationships. They're a blessing. They're a joy. And I've been married to Christina for, for 30 years, you know, and, and, uh, and, and that's just, it's, it's an incredible relationship. It's such a gift to me. And both of our kids are still talking to us, so that's a good sign most of the time, I think, you know, and that kind of thing. But, but when I think about it, you know, the, those kinds of relationships are kind of like the vanilla ice cream in the bowl, right? I mean, they're just the staple, and, and it's the core, whatever. But, but friendships are kind of like the chocolate syrup and the cherries and the nuts, you know, I'm back to my food analogies that you pour on top. They just, they just round things out in a marvelous way that, that somehow is out of the core of those relationships that we kind of bring in all the rest of the orbit of these great friendships. And I was also struck by the fact that, that both of these guys are, are, are spiritual brothers. You know, I've, I've bumped into guys that I played football in college with and lacrosse, you know, football and, and lacrosse in college together with. There we go. Maybe we'll get it out right. You know, and, and I probably spent more time with those guys than, than, than anybody else at college. You're on a practice field with them. You're in a locker room together. You've seen them naked. You know, you, you've been on a bus with them, you know, traveling all over the place. There's all kinds of stuff. 
and I, and I bump into those guys, you know, and, and I've seen some men in airports and some other places, and, and it's just not the same as when you bump into a believer, somebody that you, you know, with my college roommate or whatever. It's, ju- it's just an incredible thing. And, and so it really struck me about the significance of what we're going to be talking about today. You know, you, you can have a good life, you can have a good family, but, but what's really going to bring the real richness and the depth of all the goodness that God wants to bring into your life as, a, as, as one who's been made as a relational being like you and I have is friendship. And, and we live in an era where loneliness is on the upswing. It's weird that even though we're more connected to one another than we've ever been with smartphones and Facebook and text messaging and video chat and FaceTime, people are lonelier than they've ever been. It's almost like friendship, real friendship, good friendship is kind of on a decline and, and just kind of surface acquaintances are on the rise. And so I want to talk today about how to be the friend that you've always wanted to have. And why, my wife told me that was a bad title, all right? You know, she said, what's your title for your song? I said, well, how to be the friend you've always wanted to have. She said, that's bad, you know. <laughs> but I'm sticking with it, all right? <laughs> and here's why. Because there's an old saying that says, if you go out in the world to find a friend, you're coming back empty-handed. You go out in the world to be a friend, and you're going to find more than you can handle. The challenge for us to have great friends in our lives is to learn how to be a great friend, right? And it's as you and I master what it means to be a great friend, we're going to have great friendships. And that's what we're really trying to talk about today, how to have great friendships. And so I want to use what is really the gold standard of friendship in the Bible. And that's the relationship between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'd love for you to grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 with me. Uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're on page 242. We're, we're not going to assume that you're a Bible scholar or any of that kind of stuff, so I'm going to fill in enough of the pictures that you, you get what we're, we're going through. Many of you have been with us. We've been, for those of you just kind of jumping in, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And the series, sermon series has been entitled Journey to the Throne. And we've been looking at the journey of the nation And then of the first king, Saul, and of the second king, David, we've been looking at their journeys to the throne of Israel. And as we've done so, we're pulling out life lessons for ourselves that really guide our journey to God's throne as his child. And and last week we were in chapter 3. And some of you were very astute and realized that chapter 18 doesn't come immediately after chapter 3. There's just a few chapters in between, like 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you know, all the way up to 17, right? But the story of Jonathan and David is in verses chapters 18, 19, and 20, so that's where we're going today, and we'll back up next week. So I've got to fill in some pieces so we can bring the story up to date. Samuel is led after he's called in chapter 3, which is what we looked at last week. Eventually, he's led by God at the request of the people to anoint Israel's first king. And God chooses a man by the name of Saul to be the very first king. Saul comes to the throne. Saul has a son whose name is Jonathan. Jonathan, by all rights, is Israel's version of the Prince of Wales. He is the king in waiting. And he's not only that by birth, but he's also that by character and competence 
and qualifications. Jonathan's a guy of character. He's grown up in the rural court. He's got the experience. He's a great military commander. He's a man of great courage. 1 Samuel chapter 14, a couple chapters before our text today. Jonathan takes his armor bearer. They go out, and all by themselves, they take on a Philistine army. Just the two of them. And they start a huge victory. And against all, all military strategic advantages, they are on the downside. They're outnumbered. They're crawling uphill. They don't have enough weaponry. And they create a huge victory. Just these two guys. Jonathan, Jonathan is, is a tremendous individual. His father is not, do, not being the kind of king that God wants for his people. And so he chooses another one to be king after Saul. And that is a, that is a nobody from the sheep pasture out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Israel, a guy by the name of David. He's the son of Jesse, who functions out of a little town called Bethlehem that's just a spot on the map, you know. And, and God chooses David to be the next king, and he's anointed that way. But David has to wait for a while. But in chapter 17, David shows why, show, gives evidence that God has indeed chosen him. Because that's the famous story of the battle between David and Goliath. You know that story? You know, Goliath is like, like a moving brick wall, right? You know, he's like nine feet tall. You know, he's got a spirit away. He's like 200 pounds. He's just this huge fella. And he's, in, he's challenging Israel's champions to one-on-one battles. And nobody will take the bait except for this little kid by the name of David. He said, you know, who's this guy to challenge the, the armies of the living God? And so he marches out on the field, armed only with a slingshot, and plants a rock right in Goliath's forehead, crushes his brain, and he falls to the ground. And he brings a huge victory to the nation. Saul had learned about David before the battle. Offered him some armor and that kind of stuff. And, 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 and in the back of mind, he's thinking, I don't need to get to know this kid because he's going to get crushed. Goliath's going to come out there. He's just going to get his heel on him. He's just going to ground him into the dirt. When David comes marching off the field victorious, Saul wants to know who this kid is. And so that's what's happening at the end of chapter 17. And we pick up with the story in 1 Samuel 18. So we've got a, a valiant warrior who is the son of the king. And we've got a valiant warrior who's just a, a simple kid that God has chosen to use. And here we read about their first encounter. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him that day on. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his military tunic. So he gave him his, his colors, his rank, if you will. And he gave him his sword. Rare commodity. You read through the book of Samuel, the only guys who had swords in the entire nation were Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan gives them his sword. The Philistines controlled all the blacksmiths. They wouldn't want, didn't want them to have fighting instruments, so they wouldn't let any of the Israelites get their hands on swords. You could use a hoe, you could have that kind of stuff, but no sword. But he gives him his sword and his bow and his belt. And so David marched out with the enemy and was successful 
and, and everything Saul sent him to do. And Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased all the people, and Saul's servants as well. Well, that, that supportiveness on the part of Saul doesn't last very long. They have more encounters with Israel's enemies, and the nation experiences victories, but people are looking at it and they're saying, you know what, this is more about David than it is about Saul. And they're celebrating David more than they're celebrating Saul. And Saul gets jealous. He gets jealous for a couple of reasons. One, for his own pride. I'm the king. I should be getting the praise. He's also jealous because he can tell that God's chosen David and not Jonathan as his next king. And Saul is jealous for his son to inherit the kingdom that that should be his. So he tries to kill David. We pick up that story in verse 19. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. At this point in time, David has already become the son-in-law of the king. Not because he wanted to, but because he was backed into it. He's deeply in love with one of his daughters, Michal, and, and they've come together as husband and wife. The king was hoping that in earning his right to marry his daughter, David would get killed. That didn't happen. So he says, forget it. I'm not using the pills. I'm just going to do this directly. So he, so he ordered his son and all his servants to kill David. And Saul's son, Jonathan, he, he, didn't, he liked David very much. As we read earlier, he loved him as himself. So he told him, he says, my father Samuel intends to tell you, kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in the secret place and stay there. And I'll go out and I'll stand before my father in the field where you and I are to talk to him about you. And when I see what he says, I'll tell you. So Jonathan tells David to be in a position to escape the assassination plot. And if Jonathan can talk his father out of it, he'll let David know. If he can't, he'll also let him know that. So we pick up in verse 4. So Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. And he said to him, he says, the, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great victory for all of Israel. You saw and you rejoiced. So, so why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? So Saul listened to Jonathan's advice, and he swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words, and, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. So Jonathan intercedes for David, and he's successful. Again, that relationship, that status between David and Saul doesn't last very long. And Saul's once again back on the hunt to kill David. The twist is he's no longer involved in Jonathan. Jonathan it just happens to be left out of the daily intelligence reports about how they're trying to find David and where David's hiding in the nation. He's been kind of cut out of the loop. And Saul's going to do this without Jonathan because he knows Jonathan, when it comes to David, is a double agent, if you will, in terms of Saul's plans. Finally, Samuel, I mean, God, Saul finds David among the prophets who are with Samuel, who is still really the, the authoritative figure in the nation. And everybody goes out to grab David and bring him back from Samuel's presence. They all end up becoming prophets. So Saul decides, I got to go do this myself. And he goes out there, and there's a weird passage in here we'll deal with later that he's naked among the, the, uh, the prophets and that kind of stuff. But, but he's afraid to grab David 
There's Samuel there, so David's able to escape, and we pick up that story in chapter 20. I think it's important for you to see the story, and then we'll, we'll draw our conclusion. So, so David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he came to Jonathan. So he, he flees from where Samuel is. Saul's there and kind of captivated with what's happening spiritually, and Jonathan runs, and he comes to Jonathan, and he says, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? And Jonathan said, you know, you, no, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything without, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This, this can't be true. <laughs> but David says, your father certainly knows that you have come to look favorably on me. He has said, Jonathan know, must not know of this or else he will be grieved. In other words, he knows if we tell Jonathan we're trying to kill David, He's going to tell David, we're never going to catch this guy. So David also swore, surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, there's just about, there's just about a step between me and death. I, I'm standing on the edge of my grave. And Jonathan says this to David. This is a tremendous word. Jonathan says this to David. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it for you. Wouldn't it be great to have a friend like that? You're, you're in crisis mode, and they just say, Whatever you need, you can count on. So David told him, look tomorrow. And, and so they set up this plan where David's not going to come to the dinners that's associated with the new moon. And, that, and from that, they're going to be able to tell whether or not Saul is still trying to kill him or not. Basically, what's going to happen is Jonathan's going to say to his father, well, I told David he could go celebrate with his family instead of being here at the royal, royal court. And his father is okay with that then we'll know that he doesn't intend them ill will anymore. But if he's angry, then he needs to communicate that to David. And the way they choose to communicate that is that they're going to go out to that same field that we read about in chapter 19, and Jonathan's going to shoot arrows. And then he's going to send his kid running after it. And if he says, no, 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 you've gone too far, come back. They're this side of you. Then you'll know that it's okay, and you can come. But if I tell you that, if I yell to the kid, no, 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 they're farther beyond you, that's the signal that you need to run. And that's exactly what happened. He shoots beyond him and says, when the kid's gone, they come together, they fall on each other's shoulders and cry, and, and David has to leave. And it's interesting that even in the midst of that, when, when Saul finds out that Jonathan had told David he could leave, he actually picks up his spear and tosses it at Jonathan while they're at the dinner table. Now, I've had my father mad at me before at the dinner table. but And and there were times I had to keep an eye on his knife that was in his hand to see if it was going to come flying my way. But I, Dad never threw a spear at me at the table, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is heavy-duty stuff. Heavy-duty stuff. And, and when you think about it, both of these guys had everything to lose, and yet they trusted each other implicitly, and they set for us the gold standard of friendship. Jonathan, all he had to lose was his kingdom, right? By all rights, he should be the next king. He's qualified. He's gifted. He's earned it. He's in that role. And yet, he has, and, he, and, and he's risking his relationship with his father and everything else, and yet he does what he should do. He does what's right towards his friend David. David, all he's got to lose is his life. You know, you, you can imagine jo David sleeping underneath the tree somewhere, trying to stay out of sight so nobody knows where he's at, and, and thinking to myself, you know, all Jonathan has to do is just turn me in. 
in this role? Should I really trust this guy? I mean, he's got more to lose. He's got a lot to lose. Should I trust this guy? And yet these guys were all in on their friendship. And with that, it sets a gold standard for friendships for us. And, and, and we could talk a lot of things about friendship this morning. We could talk about communication, encouragement, and trust, and time, and all these kinds of things, generosity, whatnot. But I, let me just point out a couple things to you, because our, our time is running away, and, and, and I think these things in some ways are self-evident in and of themselves. But if, if you and I are going to be great friends, if we're going to be the kind of people that God can use as great friends in the lives of others, They've got to be marked by commitment. By commitment. Notice what it says in chapter 18, the first verse. You know, David's li- Jonathan's listening to David's speech, speak, and immediately he commits himself to David. He says, you know what, I'm going to do right by that. This guy's going to be my friend. And, he, and they make a covenant together. Now, I'm not saying that we should, you know, do like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory and have the roommate agreement that's 98 pages and whatnot. You know, we need to have the friendship agreement and get everybody to sign. I'm not saying that. But still, fundamentally, for this relationship to be what God calls it to be, we have to be committed to one another. And that's a powerful thing. Friendship takes commitment. It's something you've got to prioritize. It's something you've got to be committed to. There's times when it's going to be inconvenient. Those kinds of things. But it's powerful stuff. You know, it's been said that, that friends are the ones who are walking into the room when everybody else is walking out. I had a, had a guy stop me at the door today. He said, you know, I always enjoy your messages and that kind of stuff. He said, but today really spoke to me. He said, I've been, I've been going through a hard time in my life. And, and a lot of things that are really struggling. And, and he said, and, and a lot of people have walked away. But there's one friend in particular. He walked in the door right at that moment. And he's never left. And he said, he's, he's one of the reasons why I'm making it through. And this is a guy, you know, it's just tears coming down the corner. He said, you know what, and I'm going to tell him the kind of friend I've been to him. Being a friend takes commitment. Now, now listen, there are times when you have to, you know, you move on. You know, I, you know. Christina and I started a new life group this year, you know, and so we're, we're, and we're making some new great friendships, and it's really been cool and a blast and that kind of thing. But I got to tell you, I already missed the relationships I had in my last life group, you know. But it's not that I'm not committed to them anymore, but God called us to make a new commitment. But, you know, there, there's ways it does take a commitment to establish those relationships, and there's ways in which we need to release one another to that journey. But it takes commitment. You've got to covenant together. What do you really expect of yourself as a good friend in the life of somebody else? Great question to ask. Second truth. There, there's, a, there's a sense of mutuality in this relationship that, that I think is, is incredible. We, we often, I think, miss the symbolism, the significance of what's going on when Jonathan takes off his robe. Then he starts pulling off his military medals, you know, if you will. And then he takes off his sword and his belt and that kind of stuff and his bow and he gives that all that stuff to David. I mean, here they, here they are in the thing. Jonathan is the king's son. He's, he's got all of the markings of prestige and position and authority. He, he deserves to be bowed down to. He's a military hero. He's a person of character, etc. David is a nobody. He's the youngest kid from a farmer's family that can't even put two, rub two nickels together. David's going to say it over and over again in chapter 19. I have no right to be the king's son-in-law. I, I have no credentials. I'm a nobody. W- what is Jonathan doing when he takes off his robe 
takes off his military honor, takes off his belt with his sword on it, and gives all of that to David. Because you and I are equals in this relationship. There's no servant, you know, master kind of relationship. We're equals in this relationship. And, and part of what we need to recognize, if you and I are going to have good, good, great friendships, is that there needs to be a mutuality. We need to understand, we all stand before the Lord. We stand before each other on the exact same ground. And i got to tell you, we mess this up all the time. I think I've told you this, many of you the story before. You know, my, my brother was a, a part of a, a, a small church startup up, up in New Hampshire. And, you know, and they've started a business, and he's done quite well with it. And they've been very generous to kingdom work and that kind of stuff. They've been very generous to their building projects as a church and that kind of stuff. But, but out of that, they, they were really just looking to have some great friendships inside the body. You know, and they, they have a nice home, and, and it's pretty big, not huge, but pretty good-sized house. It's not real ostentatious, but, you know, clearly it's, 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 it's not the shack on the corner, you know, kind of thing. It's a, it's a nice home. And they would invite people from the church over for, for dinner, you know, and yet they never got invited anywhere. And it's not because my sister-in-law can't cook, you know. And, and so some of the feedback they started getting was, well, you know, I mean, you live in a nice house. You wouldn't want to come to my house. No mutuality. You know, I, I can remember when I was high school, you know, the, there were the starters and then there were the substitutes. You know what I mean? You, there were the kids who rode the bench and the kids who played. And you really couldn't be the best of friends, right? You know, there were the kids who knew how to do, you know, there were the good students and then there were the, you know, and, and then we, we just have all these differentials that we want to introduce to say we really can't be friends. That's, that's baloney. I wanted to use a different word, but I won't use that for next football. <laughs> Caught myself. You know, you and I, <laughs> you and I, we stand before God on the same ground. And, 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 and whether you're rich or poor, you know, old or young or whatever, we, we, there's a mutuality. We all need the Lord and we all need each other. And we need to grant to one another the mutual respect that is inherent in the fact that you and I are all created in the image of God. We need to value and we need to treasure that. One last truth. And that this may be a little harder to bring out, but what made their friendships so powerful, what, why it was really sets the gold standard of friendship, is that both of these guys were committed to what was right in the eyes of God. I mean, Jonathan has knit his heart to David, and David's going to take away from him, quote-unquote, everything that's precious in the eyes of the, of the world. David's going to be the next king, not Jonathan. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just not. And, and, and yet, Jonathan is committed to what God wants for David's life, even though it cost him a lot. I got to tell you that the, the very best friendships that you can have are the people who are committed to being in your life and they're committed to what's right for you in the eyes of God. Th those are the kinds of friends you want. Those are the kinds of friends you want to be to other people. You, you want what's right in the eyes of God for those that you care about. And, and I got to tell you, the church needs to be the place where people find it. 
I think the reason, one of the reasons why God created the church is to be a place where those kinds of friendships are actually available to other people. You know, he, he drew us together into the body of Christ. We're members of one another. You know, we're vine and branches. You can just go on and on with all the different symbolism that the New Testament uses. But the idea is that God has created this environment so that those kinds of great friendships should be available. And so, church, we need to give those friendships to other people. And, and that's what some all of us need to be doing. You know, if, if, if 25% of the folks who make up Hope Chapel aren't ready to give those relationships to other people, then 25% of our potential kingdom impact is being stunted. I don't care what the other 75% do. We're still losing it. It's, we need to be ready to offer that. Great blessing. Second thing I'd say, you know what? If you're looking for that, I hope you'll find it at Hope Chapel. We're not perfect. I guarantee you there's a few people around here you might not like. Just because they're different than you. You know, you, you probably don't even like me. Look at that. He's preaching too long again today. It's almost way, you know, that, you know, that, you know, that I, but I got to tell you, there, there, you will, if you look for it, you will find people that God will use as a treasure in your life at Hope Chapel. Because the people here, they may be not perfect, their personalities may rub on yours and that kind of stuff, but the people here, they've experienced the love of God. And they have that love of God to be able to give to other people. And you can find those kind of relationships that will really bless you. And if you're looking for a place, we hope that you'll check us out and find those relationships here with us at Hope Chapel. Isn't it amazing that God, who, who wasn't done creating the world until he created community, creation wasn't over until there was relationship between people, has created this church to offer up these kinds of relationships so that he can be glorified and his people can be blessed. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray together as we go to the Lord. Father, thanks for being a tremendous God. Thanks for making us, we think, to be people who lead each other. We, we just know that, boy, you know, some of the greatest joys we have in our lives and some of the greatest pains we have in our lives come because of our relationships. But God, we pray that we would come to have many, many great friends because we've learned to be a great friend. And we pray this in Jesus' name.